Hello, please let me see your ticket subs for the Double Edge Double Bill. This week, we have one crazy rough night from dusk till dawn. Thomas and Thomas Mariani will come to the table, discuss the randomly selected yin and yang of a double feature. Then both will have to pick a number between one and 10 or seal their fates for the next episode. One will have two good movies, the other two bad ones. Let the chaos begin. I am Adam Thomas and I am a mean with servant of God. And I'm Thomas Mariani and I'm ready for a wild and crazy night. <laughs> Yep, those those 70s era SNL references are, are perfectly great for all the kids. Just like, yeah, I'm hip. I'm with it. I know what's going on. Yeah, that Thomas Mariani is doing the Steve Martin Dan Aykroyd bit, I think. Yeah, from 25 years before he was even alive. Impressive. Yeah, great. <laughs> oh, that's what all the TikTok kids are saying. But yep. uh, welcome, everybody, to the Double Edge Double Bill, um, in which uh, every week Adam and I cover a good and a bad feature we pick at the end of the previous episode. And, uh, you know, we pick them around a certain topic. We decide usually to try and stay a bit relevant to whatever, like, big film release is coming out. And um, full disclosure that uh, our topic is One Crazy Night movies, which basically just movies that occur over the course of roughly at least an evening for the most part. Um, and the impetus for this was going to be a House Party remake that we thought was going to be coming on HBO Max, even though no trailer had come out, no, like, real images or anything. And then within a couple days of before we were recording this episode, uh, it got pushed back off the schedule entirely. Uh, so we're just doing this because what the fuck ever. <laughs> yeah, why not? <laughs> Whatever. At the same time, One Crazy Night is a sort of weird little sub-genre of sorts I really enjoy, and I wanted to talk about on the show for a while, just because that basic premise of, like, something wild that happens over the course of an evening, it could be any kind of genre, and there's so much palpability to, like, the idea of watching, like, something like that happen in real time, basically. There's a lot of fun to seeing that unravel. Yeah, definitely. I think it mostly lends itself you know, to the comedy genre. At least when you think about it, you think of the comedy genre. But yeah, there's horror, thriller, mystery, all that's one night. And I, yeah, I'm a big fan too. And what do you think is the key to sort of making a movie work in the span of like sort of an evening as opposed to like multiple days or whatever? What do you think a movie really needs to like sort of keep the momentum going within like a fixed amount of time? Keep it tight. Tell the story you're trying to tell. Don't go crazy and deviate that much. Just keep it on track. I mean, that's an impetus for pretty much any movie, but One Crazy Night that fits as well, of course, uh, because you want, like, sort of the wild antics to work, but at the same time, if it goes too much into, like, sort of vignettes, especially in the comedies, like, sort of subgenre, it could end up feeling almost like a sketch movie as opposed to, like, an actual story. Uh, yeah, for sure. I mean, yeah. Look at you. <laughs> yes, look at me on this audio format. <laughs> look. <laughs> Gaze. <laughs> Gaze at the logo. I'm the one on the left. <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly unless you're looking at it in a mirror baby <laughs> that's true as i do every day and cry but 
We're here to talk about our two specific features we picked at the end of our last episode, Adam. Uh, we had my bad pick, which we'll be talking about first, which is Rough Night, which fits more into sort of the topic we're talking about, like the, the general sort of like comedy angle of the One Crazy Night movie. And then we'll be talking about your good pick, which steers more into actually a couple different genres with From Dusk Till Dawn. Yeah. But uh, let's jump into that bad pick first of Rough Night. This is it, your bachelorette weekend. What's in my head? There's gonna be so many hot Miami babes. We are gonna be swimming in dick, girl. Hi, Alice. <laughs> Peter, hi. Hey. And get out of here, she's mine now. Mm-hmm. Don't get in too much trouble, okay? Yeah, I won't. <laughs> the Wallace fifth floor girls are back together, kids! <laughs> yeah, but what are you doing for work these days? Well, singer-songwriter is the dream. Uh, party clown is the reality. Let's get to the beans. Make it feel special. My turn! Oh, oh shit! He's dead. This can still be the best weekend of our fucking lives. Let's just smile a little bit. Right? Smile more. <laughs> appropriate title to you adam is that is that what you're intimating right off yeah. that right after the trailer happens well um rough night is a movie that came out uh, june 16th 2017 from uh the director lucia anello um and her co-writer slash actual partner but in real life uh paul w downs and these are two people who uh had met i believe while they were both writing on broad city previously, which, of course, Ileana Glazer is one of the stars of this movie and was a star of that show. And they've gone on to actually co-create the show uh, Hacks on HBO Max, the Gene Smart show, which I would, before we say anything about Rough Night, I would firmly recommend that show. I just started watching it. That show is fucking great. Um, Gene Smart, always phenomenal. And it's a really funny, interesting show that has a lot of depth to its characters. So um, I'm kind of glad they had Rough Night to let... um. All the bullshit out of their system, quite frankly. Yeah, to say the least, dude. Because uh, I don't know about you, but I did not find a single character in this movie interesting. Basic premise, if you're unaware, this movie that came out about five years ago is probably long forgotten by most people. Basically, um, this is the story of a group of four women who uh, grew up in college together. Um, that includes Scarlett Johansson, Jillian Bell, Ileana Glazer, and Zoe Kravitz who uh, we see a bit of them in, like, their sort of sophomore era of college, being like, oh, we're going to be best friends forever. And then cut to, like, about 10 years later, since Scarlett Johansson is trying to run for a state senator's position, and she's kind of lost track with her friends, occasionally seeing them sometimes, including for her bachelorette party, because she's going to get married to Paul W. Downs, who plays her uh, fiancé, Peter. They all go out on their bachelorette party um, over in Miami, and uh, they bring along uh, Kate McKinnon, who plays uh, Pippa, who's her Australian buddy from uh, when she studied abroad, Scarlett Johansson. And so all five of them are uh, out to have like a fun, sexy bachelorette night uh, when uh, things go awry once the stripper comes in. And um, the, the thing is with this movie, for me, I agree that I don't think most of the characters are that interesting, but... It's a shame because I really like a lot of the people in this cast, particularly like our main group, 
are all very talented comedic actresses sure. particular. Like I, I love Ileana Glazer on like Broad City and we've talked like Zoe Kravitz is obviously pretty amazing. Jillian Bell, I feel is always super underrated. Like in 22 Jump Street, she's so fucking funny and she's popped up in other things. I really would want more of like a star turn for her. And Scarlett Johansson can obviously be quite funny. Kate McKinnon, of course, is capable of being that. But and I think they get a lot of fun laughs, I think particularly with the setup for me, I would argue. Like the first 30 minutes or so, I grew to be like, at least like, okay, I like the banter back and forth between them. I'm invested in like having a fun time with this story. But I think the trouble is once the inciting incident happens and the story gets a lot darker, the movie still tries to be much more like a fun, bouncy, like, oh, we're having a fun, wacky time. And I think tonally that's kind of a death nail for this movie. See, I didn't even get the first 30 minutes of Chocolat of it. I didn't get any chemistry between the leads pretty much whatsoever. Um, these four to me didn't, at least the core four to me, didn't feel like they were lifelong friends at all. None of it really worked for me. I will say Kate McKinnon was fun in it, but again, she's playing this over the top sort of wacky Australian character that doesn't really fit in with any of the other characters. She's almost like doing her own movie. Uh, or at least she got a different script. Uh, I just, nothing about this worked for me. I didn't find anything funny. Nothing really landed. There's maybe one to two things that I actually got a chuckle out of. Uh, one of them was Ty Burrell and Demi Moore. Right. As the, the, the couple who, like the swinger couple that lives in the apartment above them. <laughs> next door. They were in the house oh, the, next The apartment door. next door, yes. Yeah, super fun, really funny turn from both of them. And the Kate McKinnon sort of stunt walk after she had that jet ski accident she's walking away just falls i thought was funny but other than that i mean i gotta be honest i did not laugh once i'm not saying that they have the chemistry of like lifelong friends i think that's an issue with the movie obviously but i think the four of them are still like funny enough to where certain bits like when scarlett johansson the moment she sees Julian bell for the first time in the movie and she gets like the weird like fucking thing on her head and she's like what's on my head and she's like the two little dicks like on little antenna things like i think like they have like a bit of fun as much as they can with this, because I think they're just all talented actresses as much as they can during the first, like, opening bits of this movie. But it's really when, like, the whole thing, like, we've been dancing around it for some reason. Um, when the stripper shows up, initially arrives, um, they have, like, a big wacky scenario where, like, Jillian Bell, like, tries to, like, get on top of him, tries to, like, oh, I want to have a dance too, and ends up, like, accidentally killing him. Uh, bumping his head against something. The moment that happens and the movie still tries to have like a sort of wacky comedic tone, it feels so weirdly dissonant in a way where it's just like, well, something big has happened here. And I don't think the movie really wants to reckon with it that much because they want to still have the wacky hijinks happen, but it also doesn't get like dark enough. Like it doesn't become like enough of a dark comedy for that to work either. So it just ends up feeling completely devoid of laughs by that point. Right. You want to see this ex sort of similar plot line done and then taken to the darkest level can go would be just the gender swap. Very bad things. Right. Which I did actually watch a sort of like a companion to this movie. And I really first time watch. Yeah. Last time, probably. I don't like that movie very much. But, no, it's not. Uh, no, no. It's dark. It's not good. But no. They lean into the darkness of it. Well, I think that's the trouble is that like, I think very bad things along with being like a gender flipped scenario of this it also has the weird thing where i think it has kind of like the 180 problem of this movie where like that movie goes pretty much into being a straight up thriller with a couple of comedy bits thrown in as opposed to with this movie the problem is that like it has much more of like that comedic tone with a couple of like thrills attempted to be added and i think in either scenario it just doesn't work 
No, I agree. But I'm saying at least very bad things leaned into it. Like they were like, okay, we're just going to go full on dark, crazy horror, basically. Like, except when we'll, we'll have Jeremy Piven like cry over the top at the funeral of his spoiler, the funeral of his fucking brother, and make it like a big comedy wacky bit. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty wacky. Um, no, I, 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 but again, I'm not saying that's a good movie. I just this movie to me, at least that movie there has it's memorable to me because of how dark and crazy and disturbing it tried to go where this one doesn't really go that route at all. Like they, they, like you said, I think like even to the point where they got the dead guy in the sex swing, or then they got him in the car and they hit the bump and everything. You're supposed to be like, Oh, they're they're being wacky. And it's just, which is fine, but it's just, none of it really works for me. It doesn't land. I, I don't think they knew the tone is off. Let's put it that way. This movie has a very big tonal problem. It reminds me a lot of like those sort of turn of the new millennium era of dark comedies. Yes. Where like you got like so, like some like lucky numbers or some shit like that where it's like, oh, we're going to be super wacky, but everybody's like murdering each other. And it's a nihilistic fucked up movie, but everybody's awful and bad. And it's like, okay, but it feels like this is a movie where somebody grew up watching those movies, but also wanted to make their characters like somewhat likable at the same time. And it's like when we get even like because of the way they also twist and turn, we're like, oh, that guy actually wasn't the regular stripper. It was Ugh. this fucking like jewel thief. thief. Right, he was working with fucking Dean Winters and his button uh-huh. who show up by the end of the movie. And so like that's just like, oh, so we're not even gonna like really grapple with that in a really either interesting way or satirical way at all. They just kinda brushed it off as like, oh, it's Florida, we got away with it, or whatever. Yep, thousand percent. Yeah, it just feels like, you know, if you're gonna even like bring this kind of like dark element to this movie, like actually reckon with it instead of just like, no, we're gonna do more wacky shenanigans like have So Kravitz get eaten out by Demi Moore. Right, exactly. Which, you know, uh, not to totally change subject from the movie that we're talking about, but right after this, I'm like, okay, I want to watch another one of these I haven't seen, but it has a decent reputation. So I watched Girls Trip with Jada Pinkett and Queen Latifah, Tiffany Haddish. Pretty solid little movie. Right, and came out the same summer. And I remember yep. there was kind of like this whole thing of like, oh, it's these two like wacky, crazy night movies. And uh, Girl's Trip is the much better version of the movie because it doesn't go that dark. It cares about its characters, but it also 100%. doesn't go into this dark direction. It's just like, it's like a fun fucking movie. <laughs> yeah, and it also has empowerment moments and all these other things. Like it has actual genuine lessons that the characters learn and everything where this does not at all. And also you believe the chemistry way more with like that friend group. I 100% believe those four women are friends. Yeah, oh, absolutely, absolutely. Plus, the pissing on people in New Orleans just made me fucking die. Well, I mean, that's also the movie that blew up Tiffany Haddish. That was really the movie that made her, like, a big comedy sensation. Yeah, well, you watch it, you get why. Right, Right. she's so fucking funny in that movie. Versus in this movie, no one is really able to, like, either break out or, like, do, like, much of anything that interesting with these parts. Like I said, I think the earlier elements that I'm talking about are more just the these performers at least trying to get something out of this and i was like all right this is like it's not great necessarily but i'm like i don't know if this deserves to be like as sort of like hated and forgotten as it is and then particularly once we get to the whole subplot with paul w downs like oh. being like oh i have to go like full crazy astronaut which shout out to wasting bo burnham and eric yep. andre and a bunch of other people at that bachelor party uh, even, oh, yeah. i did also i actually did like that bachelor party joke where just like a rather wine tasting and the guy's like oh you know what uh, i have a special surprise here looks around this wine is chilled we're gonna go crazy uh-huh. <laughs> like that was a fun bit but yeah his whole subplot where it's like oh i'm gonna put on adult diapers and go from fucking like i don't know where are they like 
Connecticut or some shit? Yeah, some shit. Some Whatever. white bread-ass town. Right, point is, they, they, he drives all the way cross-country from there to, like, fucking Florida, and he's got adult diapers on, and there's so much jokes about, like, oh, he's wearing an adult diaper, and he has to, like, go out and get gas. Oh, no! And so, it's very contrived. Yeah, it was ridiculous. None of it worked. But not fun ridiculous either. It's no. just kind of like, it's, it's very it's labored. Like all the stuff where it's like him and fucking Buzz from Home Alone as the meth dealing oh. fucking truck driver. And it's just like, oh, I need you, like, okay, you want to sell me some meth? No problem. And the other guy, like, wants him to suck his dick, but also yep. wants meth. So he has to get it for Buzz and all this other shit. It's just, it's, it's so much of, like, the contrivances. Because, like, with a one crazy night movie, you want to have the feeling that, like, you're actually in the middle of, like, oh, it's a stream of consciousness night that keeps, like, building up upon, like, one thing after the other. And in the case of this movie, it feels like I was kind of talking about earlier. This feels more like sketches. We're just like, let's get to one comedic set piece after another. And also have kind of like the line of Rama stick from like Judd Apatow movies where we're just kind of like riffing off each other. And most of the time, that really doesn't work. Oh, yeah. No, it didn't work at all in this case. And particularly once we get to like the end of this and they want to have the emotional catharsis bit of just like, oh, we haven't been really friends together. And like, I didn't have a lot of friends growing up, but you're one of my first real friends in college. Like, I don't give a shit about this. A guy died. <laughs> like, yeah, who cares about fuck. Somebody died. <laughs> yeah, you, you murdered somebody. Right, even though, like, oh, but he's a criminal, Adam, so it's all fine, and no, nobody has any cool. repercussions yep. of it whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And it's such a bummer, especially with, like, that hack show. What I love about that hack show is that it's so much of, like, because if you don't know, that show's about Gene Smart, who plays, like, this established comedian who has, like, a residency in Vegas, and she hires a young comedy writer who's kind of, like, on the outs and recently said, like, some dumb shit on Twitter. So she needs this job. So there's a bit of, like, a desperation between those two characters, one trying to stay relevant, the other one trying to stay, like, employed to some degree and actually get her start. And it has, like, a lot more pathos to those characters, and it has, like, dark moments, but at the same time, it actually gives a shit about its characters enough, as opposed to this movie, doesn't really give that much of shit about the characters as much as like oh we have like these established comedic personas they'll make it work and very much of the time they really don't like as much as I love like an Eliana Glazer and so Kravitz like they have a whole thing where they're supposed to be like exes who are like meeting back up here that kind of chemistry I particularly didn't believe at all between those two women that they would have had at any point any kind of like sexual relationship no at all and then, like I said they forced it at the end we're like oh they're, she's, they're gonna try it again like okay it just no. Which which I applaud them at least having like a casual like just gay relationship between two women in a movie, but also like make us believe in that relationship. Don't just have it there. Well, yeah, exactly. They don't they don't even look like they like each other as friends, let alone romantic. There's even like the whole thing with Zoe Kravitz's character where like it's established, oh, she went from a party girl to being like much more like businessy and like flipping houses and shit like that. And that's just dropped so quickly and she's just kind of there. Which is particularly bad for, like, the one person of color in this group, in particular. Yeah. Because we gotta have, like, Scarlett Johansson, who I think can be funny, but she's one of those people where, like, she has, like, a natural star presence. But in order for her to be funny, you have to give her really strong material. And she feels kind of like she's flailing, particularly as, like, kind of our lead comedian star of this movie. Oh, yeah, she absolutely does not work as the lead. Uh, I, I agree. I think she can be funny. I think she's definitely able to be funny i just don't think that this type of comedy it might be the way for her to go no and, and even with like a kate mckinnon kate mckinnon's extremely talented but when she like is let loose to just have any kind of thing she wants with the character it can get tiring like on snl it's like her just repeating a certain character over and over again and it's clear that like she just is kind of like re running on fumes and in the case of this character we're just like i'm australian 
don't call me Kiwi. Like that's that's it's it's stuff like that. Oh, um, I have Australian dollars. They're stronger than American dollars, which I thought was like one of the fun. Like the, the most of the lines I thought were kind of funny were just occasional like tossed off things that I thought the the actresses at least tried to put some amount of joy into, as opposed to like any of the big comedic like pratfalls or moments just feel so lifeless. Uh, I mean, yeah, I, I completely agree. Like I said, I got a chuckle out of the one, but that was you know, the second chuckle of the whole movie and the final chuckle. Uh, no, I, it just all feels f- uh, very much formulaic, but also just messy. I, I'm glad that they're doing well with that new show and things like that. Like, that's great. And maybe this movie need to happen for them to be, to, to do that and, and sort of learn mistakes from. So if that's the case, then fine. But I just, nothing about this works. I, like I said, it's not funny. Uh, the, you don't care about any of the characters. The story is ridiculous. And the whole resolution is, is almost offensive. It's just, it's a piss poor comedy. Like, what do you think is the better version of sort of like the suspiciously darker comedy? Because we talked about Girls Trip in terms of like the wild, crazy night thing. But what do you think is a better example of like maybe one of these dark comedies that kind of like veer into these directions, but end up still working despite the darker subject matter? Clue. Yeah. I think, I think Clue is a perfect dark comedy that deals with murder and, you know, mystery, intrigue, double crossing and everything. And yet it is a laugh a minute movie. Because it does take itself too seriously, but it's still so brilliantly scripted and acted. And it just, to me, if I had to pick one, that would be it. Yeah, I mean, I would definitely say that. I think um, it, it's a thing also with Clue where, like, that one also doesn't go too graphic with even some, like, the gore elements. It treats it so much more as, like, a screwball comedy premise. Uh-huh. It doesn't go, like, too bad with, like, any of the gore or anything like that. It's just like, oh, a knife's in their back. And, like, that's it, as opposed to when that guy hits, like, the fucking fireplace and the gore starts coming out like that removes so much of like any of the comedy that would potentially happen later where it's like oh we gotta hide his body and like cover up all the, Wait a the evidence the comedy is that they use those nice white towels to clean up the blood remember that's the comedy you know that's a very good point very good yeah. point that's pretty yeah. or like even in terms of like a movie like I would bring up like I don't think this is necessarily a great movie but I think it's one that at least knows how to like balance like its absurd moments with the very like darker comedic moments a bit better. Speaking of like movies from around that like turn of the millennium era, I would even say a Death to Smoochie, a movie yeah. that was very yeah, reviled yeah. at the time, but I think is like messy but at the same time i think it has a better handle of like we know when to go dark and when to have these absurd bits but it never feels too out of tone it feels like there's an even balance between those two sides of it yeah i i I think that's a fair comparison for sure um though this one didn't have john stewart caesar haircut so that's That's true missing that's that's what was that terrible awful fucking haircut (laughs) i'm surprised anyone (laughs) would have let him have in public but yeah it seems like we're kind of running a bit more on fumes with rough night adams so uh, do you have any final thoughts to add about rough night not really like i said i i just found the whole thing to be boring and formulaic i don't know lazy maybe even it just it didn't work for me yeah, it definitely feels like, if anything else, it's more annoying to me and disappointing because it's such a waste of great talent. Like, even, like, um, whether it's in front of the camera with all these actresses who I think are very talented have been funny in other places, or uh, even, you know, behind the camera with uh, the people that are, you know, writing and directing this movie, it feels like there's a bit more of an inexperience and also a clear, like, 
way where these people come from television but can't really like make that jump to film that will necessarily tell something that feels like a compact story and develop all the characters and have all the fun comedic bits work consistently at the same time. Um, yeah, it feels kind of like this weird tonal forgottenness that's rightly forgotten um, and was rightfully usurped as like the big fun crazy night movie by uh, Girls Trip later that summer. Much better, much more fun film, uh-huh. as we've said before. But let's go ahead and get into our good film now, Adam, from dusk till dawn. Everybody be cool. You be cool. Somewhere in the middle of nowhere, two of America's most dangerous criminals have taken hostages. I'm going to ask you one question, and all I want is a yes or no answer. Do you want to live through this? Yes. Okay, ramblers, let's get rambling. One night is all that stands between them and freedom. This is my kind of place. But it's going to be one hell of a night. We might be in trouble. There are a bunch of fucking vampires out there trying to get in here and suck our fucking blood. Now, their only chance is to fight back. Harvey Keitel, George Clooney, Quentin Tarantino, Juliet Lewis. From dusk till dawn. So From Dust Till Dawn is a film directed uh, by Robert Rodriguez. It uh, came out January 19th, 1996. And uh, it was written by Quentin Tarantino, though the story is by uh, Robert Kurtzman, famed uh, special effects artist from K&B. And the sort of infamy about this movie is it is a movie that initially starts off as like a very down-dirty crime thriller that involves uh, the two Gecko brothers, uh, as played by Quentin Tarantino and George Clooney in a very like initial early leading part for him. And uh, they play these uh, couple of uh, gangsterish crime brothers who are trying to, you know, uh, steal some money from various places and are trying to like, basically they, they've gotten to a point where they need to get out of town. They need to get out of the country and they're trying to po- cross the border to Mexico. And uh, on their journey, uh, they kill a few different people. They hold a woman hostage and they eventually um, hold a family who is trying to have a vacation in Mexico at gunpoint. Well, led by the father, Harvey Keitel, Juliet Lewis is the daughter and Ernest Liu is the son. And um, when they cross the border, they end up going to this bar uh, where things seem a bit off, and uh, the movie switches from a crime thriller to uh, an out-and-out, over-the-top vampire horror movie, and that was sort of the reputation of this movie, and a thing that a lot of people criticized at the time, but has gained a lot of cult-following since. And this was your good pick, Adam, so I have a feeling you like this movie somehow. Shocker. Man, I'll tell you. Like, yeah, obviously I like it. But this is one of those movies that we watched to death. Like when we had the VHS, this was literally one of those ones where we'd watch it, stop it, rewind it, watch it again. Like every time. Uh, I, I absolutely adored this movie growing up. Like to me, Seth Gecko, George Clooney was like the, one of the coolest guys. And of course, Salma Hayek, you're like, holy Lord. Uh, I mean, there's just, there was so, and it's just fun. I mean, Fred Williamson and, and Tom Savini as the sort of, sex machine and it just it's just it's super super fun and i watched it you know obviously for the show and i've seen it probably several times since then and i still really think this is a fun fun movie you know some problematic language here and there and sort of problematic characters and stuff of course 
but I still think for what it's trying to be, it hits it in spades. Like it's just this crazy heist movie that turns this all in all vampire action horror movie. And it gives you exactly that there. It's full of TNA gore, blood, violence, good looking people, gunfights, cool designs for practical effects uh, and it just it works on pretty much every level for me right yeah and the, the whole sort of impetus for this was like even the title comes from like what would put up on like drive-in marquees where it's just like open from dusk till dawn and this feels kind of like an early experiment that would later lead to like a grindhouse which was another clash yeah. between rodriguez and tarantino where it just literally feels like a double feature except it's only about like an hour 48 minutes long how old were you when you watched this initially Oh, God, when did this come out? 96? 96. So I was like 13, dude. This is 100% a movie that technically doesn't exist anymore in terms of an R-rated movie whose main primary audience is like 13-year-old boys. Yep. Who couldn't get into the movie, so that no wonder it didn't do that well when it came out. Or it did decently well, because it's like $19 million budget, made $59 million, but like the main audience for this movie could not get into it unless they bought a ticket for some like fucking kid's movie. That was at that point. Right. Because like, this is so a movie that would, has all the instincts that would appeal to, like you mentioned, like a teenage boy. And I remember I saw this when I was a teenager long after it came out originally, but I was like in the similar mode, like, yeah, like cool uh, gangster guys, guns, uh, sexy ladies with some high vampires. It's got the whole package. And I enjoy that. So on like the level of like, Oh, this is like a fun, very juvenile affair. But at the same time, I do feel like I can see a lot more of the cracks as I get older. I think particularly with, I agree that Clooney is so good in this movie. You can easily see like, this is him still at like his ER period. I believe he was still yeah. on ER at this point. I want to say this might be his first movie. Like, well, maybe not first, but first post like ER or during ER. Like it's first. How, how dare you forget about return of the killer tomatoes. Sir. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 But no, I think this was like his first branch off movie. At least his first lead, I think, in particular. Because yeah. I think he'd been like supporting characters in other movies. But yeah, this is like, it's a great statement for him as like a movie star. But man, the older I get, the more I fucking hate Quentin Tarantino's performance in this movie. <laughs> I hated it when I was a kid. I didn't like Tarantino when I was a kid. I don't like him now in this. Uh, he can't act for shit. He's annoying. Uh, I just don't, yeah, I don't like that, that character, even with all its, his proclivities and sort of perversions and horrible things, uh, that character could have been played way better by anybody else. I have a suggestion for who I think would have worked better, because that's what I was thinking the whole time watching this, like, first half with him in it. Mm -hmm. It's like, who's an actor who maybe would have worked with these guys who could have, like, done a better job? Nicholas Cage. I didn't have Cage. I actually thought because he had worked with uh, Tarantino previously on Reservoir Dogs, Chris Penn. Uh, yeah, maybe. Had more, like, because the problem with Cage is, like, I think he would have gone to, like, a bit more over the top, versus I think what you kind of need with that character is somebody who can kind of handle, especially, the, the big thing is that he's supposed to be, like, basically a man-child, right? He's supposed to be yeah. this guy who, like, is doing all these awful, horrible things, but has the mentality of, like, a six-year-old who's, like, upset that you would dare question him at any point. He's got, like, a temper and all that other shit. I think someone like a Chris Penn could kind of handle that like mix of like the darkness yeah. and a bit more of that reserved nature versus cage would have been for the wacky sort of version. But I think if anything, that would make a lot of the unfortunate implications of that character, all the more like upsetting. Then I'll see you. I'll see you and I'll raise you. I'll meet you in the middle. I'll go Tim Roth. I think Tim Roth also, I don't think could have handled that sort of childish element. 
Sure he could. It's Tim Roth. Tim Roth's a great actor, but I don't know if he would have like that same kind of like weird man-childishness that's there inherent to the character. But regardless, all these are better suggestions than fucking Tarantino, who was yeah, never yeah, a great yeah. actor, and at the same time was also like someone who, whenever he acts, quote-unquote, it's always better when he's like in very small roles. Like we talked about Desperado. He pops up for uh-huh. a minute, and they play on the fact that he's an annoying asshole. <laughs> the best the best role he's ever been in. Yeah, probably. I mean, what else are you going to say? Django? Um, no, not Django, necessarily. Maybe like a Mr. <laughs> Brown, I would say, in Reservoir Dogs. Same character, basically. As right, he, especially because he mostly shows up in like a couple scenes and acts like an asshole and then shits up. But yeah, I think like that element, I think, kind of... It doesn't like completely sour that opening bit, because there's still a lot of... like really great shots with like this is Rodriguez right off of Desperado so there's still a lot particularly like that opening gas station scene has so much tension in it oh with and, Hawks and Michael Parks of course I'd never said help us <laughs> <laughs> yep oh yeah Michael Parks is great god damn it Pete when you learn that microwave food kick quicker than a bullet they ain't good for nothing less except for a hippie when it's high on weed <laughs> <laughs> And he, that character went on to be in the Grindhouse movies, Kill Bill. Right, yeah, Earl McGraw, of course, who would pop yep. up again, despite dying in this movie. All the other seat, like, yeah. later appearances where he looks <laughs> 10 so years fun. older or whatever. The supporting characters in this movie are great. Cheech Marin's so fun. as like, three different roles he plays. Uh, Danny Trail, one of the, you know, post-Desperado, one of the other first other things I remember him in. You gotta love Tom Savini. Greg Nicotero's in the movie, too. As the guy comes in here, whips, yeah, whips the beer from him. The the one I was stunned by that I completely forgot was fucking John Saxon showing up as that one FBI agent on the yes, TV. Just I like, oh shit. John, yeah, John Saxon, baby. And Kelly Preston, by the way. Right, Kelly Preston interviewing him. As the reporter, yeah. With the amount of law official skill that some of these troopers are taking it personally, that sounds a very safe assumption. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah, you would, John Saxon. <laughs> <laughs> or even just, like, the person who is really the heart, I think, keeps this movie together because of, like, all the genre turns is Harvey Keitel. Oh, he's As, so like, good in this movie. Whether he's in, like, the big over-the-top thing at the end or the opening bit, he has so much conviction as this guy who was a preacher who has lost his faith. That is yep. so believable. And is, like, the consistent through line that keeps this movie at all working. As it goes along. You don't believe it's suicide. It ain't suicide if you're already dead. Like, yeah. <laughs> it's so good. Or it's particularly that the, the diner scene with him and Juliette Lewis is also great in the movie. We haven't shouted her. So what, you woke up one day and just said, fuck him? I did not say, fuck him. Yeah, like you said, I think him and her both keep this movie moving along pretty good. Like, yeah, Seth Gecko is fun, George Clooney, all them. But it's the, this family that you really get involved and care about. Like, you just, oh, God, oh, no. Like, when Harvey Cattell gets bit, you genuinely are like, oh, fuck. Yeah, even though um, Ernest Liu also not necessarily the best actor. There's no, but he's fine. Being- He's fine in it, yeah. Um, I, I wish maybe we had a stronger actor to kind of make that trio of a family work sure. a bit better. <laughs> I they would don't say. give him a lot, though. No, that's true. And I think, like, the big thing with the movie is sort of like that scene, it, all the stuff when we get to the Titty Twister, the bar, which is an immaculately, like, production design movie. Like, I love oh, the cool. fact that it looks a massive and big in a way it's like, oh, this place looks so cool, but it also looks grimy and filthy and shitty. And it looks exactly like what the ending scene sort of tells you. Oh, it's a part of a Mayan temple. Like, how cool. Right. Yeah, it feels like that. But, like, the whole, like, sort of, like, middle point of this movie where they sort of transition from being the crime drama to the um, -the over-the-top 
horror movie with the Selma Hayek dance. Um, I think, like, the movie is cooking with so much gas with, like, the moment the vampiric elements start showing up. Like, I think particularly when Harvey Keitel looks at the knife and he sees, like, the green blood. And the initial brawl happens in that fucking bar is such a stellar example of, like, horror action filmmaking that has so many great, like, shots of, like, Clooney having to, like, put the bullets back in the gun while Uh some hype is like, you're going to be my slave and lick the shit off my boot heel. Like, so much great tension and so many great, like you mentioned, practical effects stuff that's so good. My trouble really is, especially upon this watch, the movie never gets nearly back to that point at the rest of the movie where like the rest that that energy is gone and i think the movie kind of suffers for it i agree i think once tom savini's character goes through the window and all the bats come in is when it kind of meh ryan fred williamson turns into a weird warthog yeah whatever he is fred williamson how good uh, he's so good in this movie i mean he's he's very fun yes when he's showing up fully embracing his persona that he had in the 70s anything you gotta say to them say to me first like, yeah, he kills it with right. a pencil. Yeah. Which, I, I do also like the element of, like, the different vampire transformations have different, like, animalistic tendencies to them. Yeah. Like, Selma Hayek has the snake element. Um, Tom Savini, when especially he gets beheaded and he turns into, like, a rat creature. Or even, like, for Williamson with, like, the, the fucking warthog. There's a weird, like, it almost is like your inner animal is coming at the same time that the vampirism is taking over. <laughs> Yeah, I agree. I, that's what I really liked about this. Have you have you watched any of the series? Not the series, no. I watched the second because they had two um, direct-to-video sequels. I think the second, like the Dust Till Dawn Part Two, whatever that one subtitle is, Texas is, Blood Money. Texas Blood Money, I think, is fine. It's like a direct-to-video sequel. Like it's not good, but I wouldn't say no. it's like unfun any degree i think there's, there's some, some fun parts to it i love all the vampires with machine guns at one point right though the whole final like bank robbery like that whole set piece where it's like vampires robbing a bank i think is as fun as you can be on a direct-to-video budget <laughs> i agree the third one's terrible the hangman's daughter right the prequel that's a western right yeah yep, terrible with rebecca gayhart playing a hispanic character i was not aware of that that's yeah, 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 that's something <laughs> um but the, the series is based on the first movie, and they really dive more into it. Like, the Carlos character is a vampire, and they're all very much snake uh, vampires. Right. DJ Catrona plays uh, Seth Gecko, and he's actually decent in it. I, I will say he's okay. And Robert Patrick plays the Harvey Keitel character, and he's pretty good. Uh, but everybody else in it is really bad. Wilmer Valderrama as Carlos. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. And then Isa Gonzalez is the Santanico Pandemonio character, the Selma Hayek role. Okay. Like, it's very early for Jake Busey, a sex machine. Wasn't it like Don Johnson plays Roma Grand, right? Yes, which which he's fine. It's really bad. It went three seasons. Or on El Rey, a, a network that came and went. Now the whole thing is on Netflix, if you're interested. Oh, okay. Yeah, I know, because they also, didn't they do, like, an El Mariachi, like, telenovela series or some shit? I think that was in the works. I don't know if it ever came out. If it did, I know nothing about it. Okay. Uh, But, I mean, to go back to the original movie, though, I think 
Um, we were kind of saying, and I guess you agree with me that after like that initial brawl, the movie kind of loses steam. I think, yeah, I think there's fun parts still, but it's not at the excitement level that it was during that initial brawl. Yeah, and especially I think because what I like about especially like the the Seth Gecko character from like the uh, start to like at least the point where he does his whole monologue about like I don't believe in fucking vampires and like addresses like Harvey Keitel characters. There's still a lot more conviction to him, and it's clearly like it's George Clooney doing. Like, very early bobblehead Clooney. He's always done that, but this is a great study in his early days of, like, I have to accentuate a point by bobbling my head this way. Yeah, 100%. And, and I think, like, that adds a kind of charm to him as Seth Gecko, where, like, whether he's dealing with his horrible, awful piece of shit brother or these vampires, he has a full conviction about himself. The movie kind of, like, loses track of him, I think, as it goes Up on. until the very end. Like, I mean, they try and give him, like, a redemption thing as well. Well, him, not not really, because he doesn't take her with him. Right, I mean, that's the redemption, though, is that he doesn't take her with him. I mean, kind of, but he's responsible for this girl's entire family dying. And he just leaves her. With a bit of money, though, because he's a villain with a heart of gold. Oh, yeah. But his banter with, like, Carlos and stuff is pretty funny. That's kind of one of my favorite lines ever from a movie. What were they, psychos? He's like, psychos? Is that what they look like to you? Psychos don't explode when sunlight hits them. I don't give a fuck how crazy they are. Like, I think that's a great line. I just think it's it, it's just sort of him coming to terms with, like you said, his whole speech with, like, I don't believe in vampires, but I believe my own two eyes when I saw his fucking vampires. But I agree, when, once it gets to the final bit, and he's got that horrible stupid jackhammer steak weapon right which yeah. is cool but that thing would be a fucking what are you gonna do with that thing yeah that whole sequence where they're looking at all like the stuff that's in like the back room of the bar it just feels so much like transparent sam raimi isms absolutely but what i think is what you're getting at is once you get past that initial sort of brawl and conflict i mean the secret's done you know, the part of the fun was the secret of it that, oh my God, they're fucking vampires and they got to come up with these ways to kill them and deal with them. Well, now that they know, then it just turns into, you know, crossbow, stake in the heart, and you got it. Right, there's another like 30 minutes, basically. At yeah. Point. Just kind of that. And the action gets a bit more repetitive, I would right, say. Exactly. And even like it, the actual it, monsters, like some of that, the element I'm talking about, like all the, all the different animals, just like, no, all the designs kind of look the same after that. Yeah, they become almost like ghoul looking. Right, aside from the fucking Tom Savini turning to a rat guy, which I do love that. That which is insane. fucking spectacular. That's insane. But that's the thing. is like I wish there was more of that kind of weird escalation as the movie mm-hmm. went along. Because it's like you mentioned, even like the Aztec god element of it. Like you could almost go in further into that. We're just like, oh, they like go deeper. And it's like, oh, we're actually in a fucking Mayan temple or whatever. Like there's there's so much more that you could really do. And I guess that's what the TV series tried to do. It, it does try. It, it, right. It doesn't have the budget or the the sort of talent behind it to carry it off, to be fair. Right. To that extent, when I was talking about, like, the Grindhouse thing, my biggest problem with, like, especially, like, a Planet Terror is how much, like, they want to emulate those older Grindhouse movies, but also in a modern blockbuster kind of context. And that kind of removes the charm a bit. That one has a bit... This one has a bit of that in terms of, like, in a Grindhouse-y kind of movie, the movie would end, like, not too long after, like, that big battle in the fucking like bar there would be like maybe 10 15 minutes after that well yeah those old grindhouse movies were 70 80 minutes right as they were short right they have to like this movie even at like only an hour 50 or so minutes feels a bit like it's stretching it out yeah I, i i guess i yeah i can agree um, but, you know, we've talked about, like, Rob Rodriguez, obviously, like, Desperado and stuff like that. And what I also really appreciate going back to something like this is, like, there's a couple of digital effects, particularly, like, the bats 
when they show up. Those are the most like digital elements of it. But I miss so much of like his ability to make tactile action sequences that feel so much more immersive. Like even earlier on with like the uh, convenience store robbery scene, like how much of that tension is built from like being in a real environment and having it look like a sweaty, shitty gas station, even the production design there where like that gas station looks like plenty of gas stations I've been to in the middle of fucking nowhere. It look like they're barely being held together. Uh, John Hawkins claims he has AC, but he looks sweaty as fuck probably because there's a bunch of people who are about to murder him on the other side of things. Like you feel the actual blood and sweat that's throughout this movie, which you're missing when you get to modern Robert Rodriguez with like, here's green screen and CG sweat and blood, I guess. Or once upon a time in Mexico where he's trying to make it, everything look hot and sweaty, but here's all CG gun flares and all CG blood and all CG this. No, I completely agree with you. This movie has that sort of dirty style about the action where it's, you know, jump cuts, but it's not excessive. Like you said, that whole opening bit and, the Benny's world of liquor or whatever, where, you know, George Clooney kicks the fucking shelf and the toilet paper falls It kicks the other shelf and the fucking lighter fluid falls, you know, shoot out the bottles. And then John Hawks pops up on fire to keep shooting at him. Like it's a great fucking bit of action. Or even like the, the fact that like that one shot that ends the opening bit where like it fucking blows up as they're having the dialogue and uh-huh. it's an actual convenience store blowing up, leading perfectly into like the use of that blaster song, dark Knight is a perfect way to open this fucking movie. It's so good. Oh, absolutely. And I love the little bit, which a lot of people hated. I love the little x-ray bit with the teller in the trunk. Right. I think that's super fun. But yeah, the Dark Knight opening, oh, it's so good. And then also, obviously, we didn't mention it, but another great bit in this is Tito and the Tarantulas, the, the band. Yes. Which that actor, the lead singer, has been in Desperado. He's been in a ton of Rodriguez movies. But they're great. You know, and just the Tom Savini bit. Now let's kill that fucking band. <laughs> Fuck you, everybody. Good night. And they self-destruct. <laughs> <laughs> like that. And also, I love that when they everything's been revealed to turn into vampires, and they cut back over to the band, and their guitarist turns into like a corpse. Yeah, has like a head like, hanging weird. Down they piece together people. Like it's right. so weird. Which it's a Tito Lariva is that man? Yeah, guy, who yeah has yeah. been in several Rodriguez movies. But yeah, like they they just add to like the weird aesthetic. Even like before they turn to vampires when they're playing that song, as Selma Hayek does her dance. Like they add to like the weird mystery um, and make you almost distracted by Quentin Tarantino fulfilling his fetish. Well, yeah. At the same time, be like, yeah, all right, good for you, buddy. No, even at that point, dude. I mean, she's she's absolutely a, a beautiful and alluring. Are you saying that Selma Hayek's very attractive? Yes. But I'm also saying as a 13-year-old boy seeing this, I was like, what is going on? I'm feeling things. Like it was it was definitely one of those moments in a film where everybody has, like a lot of people have, you know, the Phoebe Cates and Fast Time at Ridgemont or things like that. This was one of those moments where I was like, holy shit, like a young awakening moment. And obviously that's what it was designed for. Right. Once again, hundred percent designed for that moment. Robert Rodriguez is just like, hey kids, here you go. Sexual awakening time, everybody. <laughs> That's another thing is I kind of wish we had more Hayek. She's so good and memorable. She's at so an good. Point. I completely agree. I completely agree. And even watching this series where the character becomes a really big part, and it's not to the level. I mean, not anything against that actress, but Selma Hayek's you know, pretty fantastic. And you get the idea like she's the leader of these vampires, and she does the snake transformation and everything, and they kill her off so fast. 
I guess that's another thing is that there's no other like they try and make sort of like Savini and Fred Williamson become those kind of characters, but they're like they're lackeys basically who are missing a main villain. That's what it feels like. They're just lackeys without a main villain. Right, and I think the Selma Hayekville character should have been in it more. I I thought that since the beginning, not just because of how how I felt about how she looked. Uh, just you, the movie is lacking that. Though at the same time, I do also like her death, just in terms of like not even like her the chandelier falling on her, but the way when she dies, she's almost like writhing sexually about it. She's legitimately almost orgasmic. Right as she's dying, it's like that's a fascinating uh-huh. factor. It's like I just wish there was a bit more of her before that kind of like weird death scene. <laughs> I agree. Even though Jacob becomes a pretty fucking big villain, I mean, obviously he kills Scott and all that, but it just they could have done more with that. Even I mean, Haruka doesn't even become like a villain. He just is like a dad who is like being like knows that he's at the end of his rope. Like when he becomes a vampire, it's very brief, and then he like gets shot in the head and pretty much dies at that point. Right, I agree, but I'm saying they could have done even more with that. Made made him even more of an adversary. I think the problem is with this movie, it's too many goons and not one major villain. A a movie we've talked about previously that kind of does this a bit better in a year before is like Tales from the Crypt Demon Knight. Like, you needed a Billy Zane to, like, last throughout the whole movie, pretty much. I agree. But is there any doubt, like, if you were to watch this movie right when it first came out or had never seen anything else watching this movie, was there any doubt George Clooney was going to be a huge star? I mean, no, necessarily. even though this was still like, this is him trying to become a movie star and like this doing okay. And then the following year is like Batman and Robin was not a great time for him. <laughs> no, but still his charisma and stuff. You're like, Oh, this guy's yeah, he's a big star. I mean, it's more that like he has the potential, but I would be, if I was even at that time, just like, I mean, there's potential here, but hopefully he can, you know, do something big with his next project. And then it's either, I think One Fine Day was also this year, the Michelle Pfeiffer movie, right? Where he had to be like a romantic lead that didn't work. And then Batman and Robin, it was kind of a dire point. And then of course, Out of Sight happened. And that's what really cemented like, no, this guy's actually a fucking movie star. And it's going to keep going from here, especially the way that he even handles having like that tattoo. Like, that tattoo is so fucking grody and awful, but at the same time, you're like, he makes it work. It's such a mid-90s tribal tat. Yep. Yet, you're like, that looks fucking cool, man. <laughs> like, it looks so cool on him, the way he creeps up on his neck and everything. Like, and the way yeah. his head bobbles on top of it. Non-stop. I mean, he bobbles non-stop. <laughs> this fucking guy. <laughs> um, though I will also say just to briefly go back to the Quentin Tarantino of it all the one time I don't like the makeup is him as a vampire he looks like a like puffy Frankenstein yeah I don't like it either I think he looks better as a vampire when George Clooney sort of sees him as his normal face with the fangs yeah and he's got like the different eyes to me I'm like oh that's terrifying but yeah when he's basically like Frankenstein from Van Helsing it looks like Frankenstein, who's allergic to shellfish, just like, yeah, <laughs> Frankenstein can't eat shrimp. No, like coconut, can't have shrimp. <laughs> the eternal struggle of Frankenstein in every... That's what Mary Shelley originally had in the text, and they're just displaying... <laughs> Were there capers in that? Oh, no. <laughs> uh, but yeah, let's go ahead and go into our final thoughts then on From Dust Till Dawn, Adam. Uh, like I said, I still think it's a super fun movie. It's not necessarily like when I was 13, I was like, oh, this is the greatest fucking thing ever. 
but I still have a lot of fond memories of watching this with friends and turning people onto it. And, you know, like I said, even watching it now, I still really enjoyed myself. I've watched all the sequels. I've even started the show, which is terrible, but yet I'm still going to watch it. In, in all honesty, just on the bizarre fascination or curiosity where it's going to take it. But yeah, I think it's really fun. I think it's a really great uh, George Clooney, Tom Savini, Fred Williamson, Selma Hayek, Danny Trejo. I, like I said before, Cheech Marin, really fun in it. For what it is, for this dirty, sexy, violent, vampire heist horror film with some chuckles in there, I think it works. I still think it holds up enough. I, it's not one of those where, like, uh, you know, uh, in comparison, Boondock Saints. You know, same type of idea. When I saw it when I was a kid, I was like, oh, this movie's the, the shit. You watch it now, you're like, this is garbage. I still think this one doesn't hit that. I think this one is still pretty fun. Yeah, I would definitely say it's still pretty fun and more deserving of that kind of cult status, uh, for sure. Because I think it it manages to build an interesting world without going too far into it necessarily. Though I do wish it kind of like at least fleshed out some things and nothing else so we could have a bit more interesting stuff in the last sort of big final battle moments of the movie. But still, like it's a very fun ride. It's a very unique sort of movie as well because I can't think of another movie that even tries that sort of midway through it switch genres so swiftly the only thing i can think of where it's not even necessarily switches genres but switches your opinion of the characters would be like the devil's rejects we're halfway through the movie you get the the ice cream tutti fruity scene you start rooting for that family and William Forsyth's character becomes the villain and i guess also it becomes less of like a straight-up horror movie and much more of like a, a crime sort of like bonnie and clyde kind of movie by the that second half as well, I, I can right. agree with that. Um, but but yeah, this movie I, I admire its uh, attempt to do that, and I think it's more successful than say like the Grindhouse Experiment that they would do later. It makes me miss sort of that era of Robert Rodriguez having a bit more of a tactile nature to his filmmaking style. And uh, yeah, there's a there's a lot of fun stuff, even though you know some casting decisions in particular uh, might hurt it. Um, so at the same time, it's also that, that kind of phenomenon I'm talking about, that just a movie that's aimed at an audience who cannot see it in a theater. <laughs> Honestly, it's just like that doesn't really like exist anymore to any degree. I think it's kind of admirable in a juvenile way. But let's go ahead and get into our weekly segment, The Double Redo. Double Redo. Double so the double redo is a segment we do every week where uh adam and i uh you know in companion with uh, the movies that we're uh, covering as the main discussion of the show, we uh, bring up a good movie we recommend and a bad one we don't recommend based around the topic. So Adam and I each have a good and a bad pick related to one Crazy Night movies. And I'm starting here this week. And uh, I'm going to start off with my good pick is a movie from an acclaimed auteur, but not one that gets a lot of uh, love as much as some of his more bigger successful movies. I have Martin Scorsese's After Hours, which uh, stars Griffin Dunn as a man who works as like a word processor by day. And uh, that night after um, he, you know, clocks out for the day, he's kind of restless. He can't really sleep. So he decides to go out to a diner and kind of chill out when he meets uh, Rosanna Arquette, who uh, shows up as a woman who kind of takes a fancy to him and it's just like, hey, uh, meet up with me later at my place at like 1230. And it's like on a weekday night. But he's like, okay, sure, I'll do that. And then he goes over to her apartment and, 
And from there, it becomes a lot of sort of like the one crazy night shenanigans of like one thing happens after another. And that's a movie that does get very dark and very upsetting and goes in all sorts of weird directions. But what I really like about it is that Scorsese knows that it's like, okay, we're going to take this comedic premise of like, oh, this guy goes from beat to beat. He keeps like a sort of even tone of like there. It's all very comedic scenarios, but there still is like a danger constantly throughout and there's a lot of great appearances from people like it's uh, a young Catherine O'Hara shows up uh, Linda Fiorentino who I think is very fun in this movie uh, Cheech and Chong both show up in this movie uh, a couple times it's a really fascinating movie especially for like Scorsese to do this it has so many of his like great impulses as a director that you know works so well for like all like the big crime dramas or some of the other things that he's done but I like that he implements them in a comedic scenario that also feels constantly dangerous. Like, this is the best example to me of, like, a comedy thriller, where you're kind of chuckling at what's going on, but also you're tense about it at the same time in every interaction. And I think it makes it, like, such a fascinating, unique movie that deserves a lot more credit in his career. Very underrated, very underappreciated. And uh, my bad pick is Project X, which is a movie that came out in 2012, and is sort of widening off the wave of the One Crazy Night movies in the vein of, like, Superbad and The Hangover, uh, where it stars a bunch of teenage boys who are like, oh, mom and dad aren't home at this one guy's house, so we're gonna have a wild and crazy night, and it's the party that just goes, like, bizarre and in insane directions, but the problem is the movie doesn't really reckon with, like, the insanity that happens as much as it's just like, oh, isn't this fucking fun that we're just destroying property we don't give a shit and we want to also make these kids likable when all these kids are, like, so obnoxious and annoying. It's like if every single kid was the, like, rowdy sidekick character in one of these, like, big one crazy night movies. And the also big thing about it was it was um, shot as a found footage movie because it's also in the middle of that craze. And I think some of the set pieces look interesting in that found footage aesthetic, but it's mostly just kind of like a way to obscure the budget while also trying to be like this big, wild, and crazy adventure and trying to disguise also the fact that it's like, oh, these kids feel naturally kind of shitty, right? It's like, no, they just seem like kind of unlikable, uninteresting, and the movie looks kind of ugly for the most part because it's in this like dumb found footage style. So it ends up being kind of like a grating, annoying mess. Well, I've never seen After Hours. Uh, it's one of my biggest blind spots as far as Scorsese, but I definitely do want to see it. I love Griffin Dunn, and by the way, Griffin Dunn recently sh- uh, you know, showed up in a show we might have talked about in uh, Succession as a therapist, and it was fucking hilarious. He dove to the pool, broke his teeth. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, uh, I have seen Project X once, and I honestly, I'd be hard pressed to tell you anything about it. I remember thinking it was just fucking stupid and not funny. And it, yeah, I mean, it just feels like the the bare minimum attempt at doing one of those crazy house party movies or super bad or whatever. But hey, this one's found footage, so it's different. And uh, yeah, I just remember thinking it was just lame. Was it lame? Um, I don't know. Uh, a little person came out of an oven, so that might actually mean it's great. Oh, comedy gold. Yeah, no, I'm good. Okay, so I'll go into mine. For My Good is another movie, you know, to keep on the trend of last episode that we watched together that does take place over uh, a day and a night, but it is one day and it shit gets crazy at night. And I really enjoyed it. Talk about a stacked fucking cast. I have bad times at the El Royale. I absolutely adored this movie. I loved everything about it. I thought everybody in it 
fucking crushed, uh, especially Bill Pullman's son. Like, what the fuck? But just Hemsworth as this crazy, sexy cult leader. What a great villain turn from him. That's why even seeing that, I'm super excited to see his villain turn in Furiosa. It's super exciting. It feels like a Coen Brothers movie that the Coen Brothers didn't make but should have, and yet this person did it and did it just as well. Um, I, I just think it's absolutely one of those other movies that sort of got lost for no reason. It's really super solid and fun, funny, sexy, nerve wracking. Uh, great mystery, great suspense. I just, I absolutely love it. And for my bad, real briefly, it's a movie I loved as a kid. Watch it recently. Can't stand it. I have adventures in babysitting. When I was a child, I, this movie was the shit for me. I, I just absolutely thought it was the coolest movie. So funny, so cool. You watch it now and it's just so bland and dumb. Elizabeth Shue's still pretty good in it, but Arnett, ugh. although... Hats off to early Vincent D'Onofrio, sexy mechanic Thor. Um, yeah, I've seen both your movies. Uh, obviously, with uh, Royale, we did watch that together when I uh, went up to there to visit you in uh, Michigan. I definitely want to cover that at some point on the show. I definitely feel like I, the moment we you picked from Dust Till Dawn after we our last episode, I'm like, oh fuck, I wish we almost he'd picked uh, El Royale as one of his choices. But still, uh, I think it's a movie I would like to talk about more in the future. Um, but I'll say this much. The sort of contrast between Jeff Bridges and Cynthia Revo, um, I think, is one of the great examples of, like, that's the first time I saw her in anything, and the way that she's able to act off of Bridges in that movie is so fucking sell them, just like, oh my god, you're acting against one of the most charming fucking people who's ever acted on screen, and you're, like, keeping toe-to-toe with them so perfectly, you're a fucking star, lady. You're, you've got something. And that was actually made by Drew Goddard, who had done uh, Cabin in the Woods previously, and it's a shame that kind of, like, stalled out his movie career. That also, him being a part of, like, various different, like, Marvel projects that came and went. Like, he was going to do the Sinister Six movie, and that fell apart. And he was initially on Daredevil, but he left that to do Sinister Six, which fell apart. <laughs> and shit like that. That dude has had a very, um, unfortunately, stalled career, which is a shame, because I think he's very talented. I think this movie is very underrated. And Adventures in Babysitting... Um, I didn't see until around college. I remember thinking that was very fun. I remember really enjoying it quite a bit. Um, and I think Elizabeth Shue, it's such a shame she didn't have a bigger career, honestly, because I think she's so phenomenal in that particular movie in a lead. And then she just kind of like got relegated to being like in the Back to the Future sequels and a few other like smaller parts. It's a shame. But um, yeah, I remember liking like Sexy Thor and some of the other stuff. I, I like, I dig that movie quite a bit. Well, that's the way the popcorn pops. When, when are we getting that shirt? When are we going to sell that shirt? <laughs> That's the way the popcorn pops. It's Adam with a fucking square thing of popcorn. Make it. You know, I don't do anything for the show, so you take care of it. Uh, f- fan art. We haven't asked for fan art before. Do that. Fan art, somebody. <laughs> do that for us. <laughs> yeah. But uh, let's go ahead and repeat our titles for everybody uh, out there in case they uh, missed them. Um, I have, uh, for my good pick, I had After Hours, and for my bad, I had Project X from 2012, not the monkey movie from the 80s with Matthew Broderick. And for my good, I had Bad Times at the El Royale, and for my bad, I had Adventures in Babysitting. And we're getting to the exit of the show. We'll be doing our picking for next week, so stay tuned for that. But first, got to thank some people. Like, uh, thanks to Chris Oliver for the intro and outro music used in our show. Listen to more of his music at chrisoliver.bandcamp.com. Thanks to Christian Thor Lally for our artwork. Follow him at Night of Water. That's Night with a K 
underscore of underscore water for more of his uh, great stuff. And uh, thanks to our Patreon supporters, patreon.com slash dedbpod, where for just $1 a month, you all get to vote in polls to pick movies or topics that we cover for the show. And also you get to listen to bonus podcasts, which stay tuned uh, for around the end of the month, we'll have our top 10 alien creatures episode uh, for you all. I can't wait for that. I'm pretty stoked on that. I'm very curious as to what the fuck you're going to throw out there. I mean, same here. That's the interesting thing is we don't usually discuss like the big, like unless we, we might like discuss our number ones to each other, but we keep most of the lists in the dark. Yeah, for sure. It's just the only simple rules is we, we try not to repeat on our own personal list, uh, an alien from the same franchise. So like no two aliens from star Wars or no two aliens from star Trek, that type of deal. For more of us, find us on Twitter and Facebook at DEDBpod. And also, uh, you can email us feedback or double redo choices, for example, at uh, doubleedgedoublebill at gmail.com, all spelled out. And uh, for more of my antics, find me on Twitter and letterboxes at NotTheWho'sTommy. And I also do some writing at MarianiThomas.wordpress.com and at Film-Crid.com. And you can find me on Instagram at Atom or Adam. It's A-T-O-M underscore O-R underscore A-D-A-M. Or you can find me on Facebook under my full name, Adam Thomas. Send me a message. Let me know you're a fan of the show or whatever the fuck. And we can shoot the shit. And I'm also on Letterboxd at Schwanson. That's S-C-H-W-A-N-D-T-S-O-N. And if you want more of our uh, audio adventures, uh, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other podcasting platforms. If you're listening on Talk Film Society, our great podcast network, why not listen to all the other great shows on the network? And uh, you can also dig into our archives on our Podbean main feed for about 200 episodes before we even join Talk Film Society. And nothing else, if you can't, you know, support us on the Patreon for the $1, it's cool, money can always be tight. Totally free way to help us out is to rate review, or simply share the show around because that gets us more visibility. Yeah, I mean, it's literally the easiest thing in the world. I don't know why the fuck nobody's doing it more. What is going on? You're in the middle of a crazy night of horrors right there, Adam. (laughs) Apparently so. Apparently so. Well, now, Adam, we gotta end this show by doing our picking, as we always do every week. Adam and I uh, pick a good and a bad feature for the next week's episode, and we switch up on the quality, uh, because one of us has two good picks, one of us has two bad picks, and we assign numbers between 1 and 10 for each of those, so the other person will have to pick number between 1 and 10, and, you know, whatever that's closest to would say, oh, I picked number 4, well, that's closest to number 3, which is this particular movie, that's what gets us our good, and then our bad feature, but keep in mind, the Godfather rule is still intact, where Adam and I were given a veto last May, uh, to use one single veto we have to use before next May, uh, where if we hear one of those choices after we hit our number, and we're like, you know what, I want to cover that movie, we can say, actually, I'll take the cannoli, and thus, uh, that choice is gone, and we have to go with whatever other choice is there, uh, from the other person, and the picking we'll be doing in honor of Bullet Train coming out, uh, we're doing the topic of Mr. Brad Pitt, who has definitely had an illustrious, interesting career over the course of the last, like, 30-plus years or so, and that's something we've wanted to vote an episode to for quite a while. Yeah, I mean, he's one of the biggest movie stars of both of our generation. I mean, he's Brad fucking Pitt. Mm-hmm. He ain't the Pitts, despite his name. <laughs> well, one of the things we're going to talk about is... That's true, because you have the two bad choices. I've got the two good choices. Uh, so, uh, Adam, for my two good choices, please pick a number between one and ten. I will go number three. Okay. Over at number two, I have 
Um, a more recent film from Mr. Pitt, uh, one that was kind of like an unfortunate bomb of sorts, but I think it's a very interesting sort of blockbuster that I don't think we'll get again for quite some time based on not doing well. I have Ad Astra. Oh, buddy, I love this movie, and I am so excited to rewatch it. I will not be taking the cannoli, obviously. Wouldn't it be crazy if I was like, oh, I love this movie, cannoli. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the, the switch here. This is like a, from Dust Till Dawn, mid-ground, like, oh, we're changing everything up. What a twist. But on the opposite end of things, over at number nine, I have a movie where he's part of a big ensemble that includes one of the stars of uh, this week's good pick, um, but he stands out so well. And it's my probably my favorite comedic performance of his. I have Burn After Reading. Great movie. Yeah, Burn After Reading solid. It's probably one of my favorite performances of his, too. Isn't that funny? Like, I instantly was thinking you were talking about Ocean's Eleven. No, well, of course, because George Clooney, obviously, has yes, been yeah. in three Ocean's movies together as well. No, this is <laughs> this is Ocean's uh, 14, um, right. where everybody, like, murders each other. So, yeah, now it's time to pick for your bad picks, Adam. And I'm very curious as to where this is going to go. So I'll go ahead and go with number eight. Oof. Okay, man. Uh, well, this is a terrible film. Uh, it's not... It's one of his first, like, earlier movies. I think, like, Thumb and Louise is the one that everyone would think, too, when they think, like, first time I saw Brad Pitt. But this is right around there, and it's uh, atrocious. I have Cool World. Oh. Yeah, Cool World's very terrible, but incredibly fascinating. Um, I'm not taking the cannoli on that. There's a lot to talk about with Cool World. Okay, man. <laughs> Fuck. All right, and at number one, I had one of a movie that is a guilty pleasure of mine for some fucking reason. All three hours of it, Meet Joe Black. I have seen this. It's been so long uh, since I saw all three hours of it. Um, I'm curious to talk about that with you at some point, uh, but I don't know if we need <laughs> to do a three-hour movie for our next episode where we have a guest, spoilers, that we're planning on bringing on board. Uh, so, no, I, I'm, I'm, I'm glad we're at least doing a movie that I think is only like 90 minutes long. <laughs> it feels like three hours, though. Yeah, maybe, but is the literal actual time spent will not be three hours, so there's that. Fair enough. All right, so Cool World and Ad Astra, different spectrums of his career as a movie star. <laughs> Very fascinating. Yeah. And we'll be talking about that next time, but until then, everybody, uh, you know, watch out for them dark nights. It's a dark night. <laughs> Did Patrick Buttram cover Dark Knight? I wasn't aware. Yeah, I think, I think so. Everybody everywhere is going to know it was a dark <laughs> night. <laughs>